All right, good morning. We'll get started here. So come on in, find a seat. Good morning. Welcome once again. Uh, good morning, Weymouth. Hey, nice. uh, we'll get started here just with a, a brief moment, uh, as is our pattern of just silent prayer. So let's, uh, let's bow and pray and prepare our hearts for worship. So please bow and pray with me. Psalmist writes, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, so if I help us to kneel and worship, for you are our God, we are your people. You are our shepherd. We are your sheep. So Lord, help us to praise you. Help us to hear your voice through your word this morning. Give us soft, receptive hearts to all you will have to say to us as we study your word, as we sing the gospel together. So help us to do so now with joy, with humility. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Please stand and sing with us. down, we lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus, the greatness of mercy and love at the feet of Jesus, and we cry,
so this is a song that we taught last week, um, Only a Holy God from City of Light. Um, so if you're familiar with it, please sing along. And we'll, we'll run right through it. So, this is Only a Holy God. commands all the host of heaven who else could make every king bow down who else can whisper and darkness trembles only a holy God what other beauty demands such praises splendor outshines the sun what other majesty rules with justice only a holy God come and behold him the one and the only Christ power can raise the dead what other name remains undefeated only a holy God come and behold him the one and the only Christ Cry out, sing holy 
Well, today is the, the first Sunday of the month, and it is our pattern to, to celebrate communion together as a church family on the first Sunday of each month. So we'll do that uh, at the end of the service here. And along with that, on um, these communion Sundays, we uh, take a break from our normal uh, kids lesson. So I want to dismiss the kids now to, to Weymouth Kids. You can go with Mrs. Martin. I know you guys are excited about today. So if you guys want to go follow along with her, you can head on back and then... Uh, and then we just have uh, our time of announcements now in the service, and uh, there's, there's a number of things. You can look at our bulletin. If you didn't grab one, they're on the welcome table in the back, our church bulletin. You can go to our website, weymouthchurch.com, uh, to keep up with some things. There's a number of things happening, coming up, so please uh, make yourself aware of that. Uh, but this morning, in this announcement time, what I wanted to do is just briefly, uh, just briefly give a report on our annual meeting, our congregational meeting last Sunday. Uh, if you were unable to make it after the service last week, we had a congregational meeting with our members where we uh, did and discussed a number of things. So uh, just briefly, I wanted to share what happened there, just for the sake of those who weren't able to be there. Uh, but the three, the three big uh, affirmations that uh, happened were uh, we affirmed uh, Russ Kinnebrew, Jim Stevens, Tom Lazio as elders uh, for a four They'll join Dave Hokey, Jim Martin, and myself as the, the six elders here of Weymouth. And uh, we were... We were Overjoyed that they all uh, were affirmed unanimously. Uh, so these, these men will serve over the next three, four years as, as the shepherds of this church and beyond if, that, if that's God's will. Um, but when we think about elders, again, these aren't trustees. These aren't people that we vote to represent us. These are people that God has appointed to shepherd and to lead this church. And so we're thankful for the men that God has raised up for that office. We also affirmed two budgets for 2024 at the meeting. We affirmed our, our missions budget at 33000 There was a slight increase there to reflect our desire and our prayer to grow and supporting different missions opportunities. Uh, we also affirmed our budget for 2024, our general fund budget for operations, for ministry, for all those different things. Uh, and what I wanted to highlight there is that we said in the meeting that typically our pattern year by year is to increase our budget around 5% as, as God uh, brings giving and, and and uh, provides those resources. But uh, this year we presented and the members affirmed a budget that's more of a, around a 10% increase. And the reason for that we wanted to be transparent is in that budget includes the, the resources that would be necessary uh, to, to grow the opportunities that God has brought. We didn't increase the budget because we want to add a wing to the church or because I need a new car or we want to buy a private jet or anything like that. It's because God has brought opportunities you know, in the community with this building through VBS, soccer camp, outreach, youth, kids, all these different kinds of things. He's brought opportunities to us. And if we prayerfully want to see those opportunities grow, we need to step out in faith together and trust God to provide the resources to make that grow. And so we want it to be transparent at the start of the year because you'll see that reflected in the giving reports and things in the bulletins week by week, uh, but also as a reminder to us to, that, that we all play a role in this. That as God brings these opportunities, it's not just the pastor's job or the elder's job to step out and meet them. It's, it's the whole church's job. And so we put out the charge last week of how are we all going to be involved through our prayers, through our service, and yes, also through our giving to, to try and meet the opportunities God has presented us with. So that's why we put out that budget. It's, it's almost more of a charge, a challenge to the church uh, to, to try and meet uh, the opportunities God has set out for us. And so as we say that and we think about it and, and you think and pray about your own involvement in that through your prayers, through your service, through your giving, I just wanted to take a moment to pastorally remind us that when we talk about giving in the church, that when we talk about tithing or, or giving of our, our funds or money, that, that really what giving is, what tithing is, is it's, it's, it's a part of our regular worship. 
It's not a membership fee, right? It's, it's nothing like that. It's, it's part of how we regularly worship God. We worship Him by giving back to Him a portion of what He has given to us. And so that's biblically the, the basis for giving and for tithing. It's a form of worship, but it's also a way that we can be invested together in the mission God has brought us, the opportunities He brought us, the kingdom purposes He has for us. So if you ever have questions about that, about, about what the Bible has to say about giving or tithing, I'd love to answer them. If you're ever curious about how we do that as a church, there's a box in the back, an offering box you can slide stuff into. There's also, also a place on our website uh, where you can give online, or if you go to the Church Center app, you can give that way. Uh, but we want to put that out at the start of the year just so you're aware, so we're just being transparent, um, that that's, that's where things are, what we're looking to see God do in this new year not for the sake of our own comfort, but for the sake of his kingdom, for the sake of the community, the opportunities we have to reach out and go out together. So we're really excited. We're really excited for the opportunities God has brought us as a church, for the opportunities he's brought us as, uh, in this community. And so the final thing we affirmed, the members affirmed at that meeting, was uh, some funds from our uh, facility uh, improvement uh, reserves for uh, improving a, a section of our parking lot that needs to be repaired and also for, for fixing up our fields. Because we have some great fields here as a church that uh, need to be flattened, need to be fixed up, and doing so will allow us to, uh, you know, do more with soccer camp, do different kinds of sports ministry, invite kids in from the community to do, you know, local soccer teams or, you know, ultimate frisbee, or you know, we can we can use that for sports ministry outreach, uh, whatever we want. We could fit a number of soccer fields on there with, once they're all flat and and nice and ready to go. So we presented that not because again we want this to be a nice, comfortable building but because we want to think, how can we use this resource, the opportunity God's given us in this building, in these fields, and in this parking lot, to welcome people with the love that we have been welcomed with in Christ. And so there's a lot of exciting things to come, so we'll do our best to keep you guys updated as those things progress, as, as we look at giving and budgets and fields and parking lot. And if you have any questions about that, know that the door is always open to discuss it. But we hope you share the sense of excitement, the sense of opportunity that God has brought us as a church to step out in faith together, not for ourselves, but for the sake of Christ and his kingdom for those who don't know him. And so in light of all of that, I think it's, it's only appropriate to pray. It's only appropriate to thank God for these elders he's raised up, for the, the resource he's provided, and to ask him to continue to provide uh, what we need so we can go out for him together. So please bow and pray with me. Well, gracious Father, we, we, we praise you because you are holy, you are set apart, you are divine. We praise you because you ultimately have dominion over all things. You are our, our ruler and our Lord. And we praise you because you are merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. And in that grace, you have brought us so many opportunities as a church to, to gather together week by week to worship you, to fellowship with one another, but also to go out to go out and share your love and share your truth with others, to use uh, this facility, to use our partnerships in the community to, to help other people who are, who are struggling, who are desperate, who are lost. So we pray that you'll open doors for us in this community to share the gospel, to engage our neighbors, to evangelize those who don't know Christ. Help us to have wisdom as a church to, to pursue which doors to walk through, to, to use which resources in ways that honor you. Pray that you'll provide the resources we need as a church family as we step out in faith, relying on you to do these things, ultimately through your spirit, through our weakness and even our frailty. Use us, Lord, to glorify your name, to lead more people to praise your holiness and your goodness and your grace. Lord, help us to go out together. Help us to, to seek those 
who are, who are lost, who are seeking you, even as they run away from you. Help us to do that in our neighborhoods, in our places, in our communities, in our schools, even in this church building. Lord, we give all that we have up to you. Help us to serve and glorify your name by helping others come to know and praise you, come to be part of your kingdom. Lord, give us the, the strength, give us what we need, give us the humility to step out in faith, but also enjoy rejoicing in your goodness and grace to us. We lift up these elders, we lift up uh, Russ and Jim and Tom and Jim and Dave and myself, Lord, we pray that you'll give them wisdom, you'll give us uh, your guidance as we seek to shepherd you, this church, that you'll shepherd us through your word and through prayer. Lead us in the way that we should go and help us to, to serve and steward your grace to one another. And help us as we live life together as a church, as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to, to submit to one another, to serve one another with your love, with your grace, with your truth. And help us to go out together rejoicing, to be so unified in Christ and so full of joy and humility that the world can't help but ask, can't help but wonder where that hope, where that unity comes from. Make that the picture we reflect to the world, the picture of your grace, your unity, your holiness, for your glory. We pray all that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, please stand and we'll sing together. We stand and lift up our hands for the joy of the down and worship him now how great how awesome is he and together we sing everyone sing holy is the lord god joy of the Lord is our strength. We bow down and worship Him now. How great, how awesome is He. And together we Yeah. 
In Christ's name, amen. amen. Now, when our, uh, when our first daughter was born, uh, obviously it changed a lot of things for my wife and I. Really, it, it changed everything. Right? We had to get used to life with a lot less sleep. We had to get used to changing diapers and feeding schedules. And now as having a first grader, we have to get used to classes and getting up in the morning and getting to school on time and all these different things. It changed everything. Right? It changed how we live. It changed what we prioritize. It changed what we're willing to sacrifice. As this new life came into our midst, it changed everything. And as we read this first chapter of 1 Peter, Peter uses a a similar logic here. That when new life comes into our midst, everything has to change. Peter uses this logic as, as as AJ helpfully showed us last week. Peter, he's just spent the previous 10 verses, previous 10 verses outlining beautifully, gloriously for us the new life that believers have in the risen Christ, the new birth through Christ's resurrection, Peter writes in verses 3 to 5, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. If there are any verses in First Peter you're thinking about having tattooed on the inside of your eyelids, it, would be those, it should be those verses. Verses 3 to 5, I guess that wouldn't really make sense because you close your eyes and you wouldn't be able to see it. But, but these are central to Peter's argument here, this section on this new birth, this new life we have in the risen Christ. It sets everything else up in the letter. Because in these verses, Peter, he's praising God for how God has brought believers a new life, a living, imperishable, unfading hope through Christ's resurrection. And he starts with this because as Peter is writing this letter to those who are exiles in the world, to those who are reviled and rejected for their faith, who are experiencing hostility and persecution, to these people he reminds them of the glory, the wonder, the beauty of this new life, this new birth in Christ, this new life that includes both personal salvation and future hope. And so then how does Peter follow this great, glorious announcement of this living hope in Christ? He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, Peter is telling us that this living hope we have in Jesus, this great glorious salvation, this isn't something that we just intellectually understand. This isn't something that we just put in our pocket and save for a rainy day. No, this new life changes everything. It changes how we live, what we prioritize, how we spend our time, what we are willing to sacrifice. And so Peter follows this great proclamation of our new life in Christ. He follows it with a series of instructions for how we live now in light of this living hope. And specifically this morning here in verses 13 to 21, the point that Peter wants us to see is that our future hope produces present holiness. Our future hope produces present holiness. 
And Peter lays out this argument through three key commands in the text. Three key commands. First, set your hope in verse 13. Then conduct yourselves in holiness in verses 14 to 16. And finally, conduct yourselves in fear, verses 17 to 21. So set your hope, set your hope, conduct yourselves in holiness, conduct yourselves in fear. That's how we live in response to this hope that we have in Christ. So let's look first at this first command, set your hope in verse 13. Now, I am not a big runner, never been a big runner, never been a great athlete. I don't know if you can tell that just by looking at me. Um, probably not. No. <laughs> if, if, but if maybe if you're an athlete, or if you're interested in running, if you ever ran track and field, then it, it might be interesting to know. I came across just this, this little bit of information this week that uh, before the invention of starting blocks, right, those little metal things runners put their feet on, I'm guessing from watching videos, uh, before the invention of starting blocks, which were created in 1929, before that, what runners had to do in track and field is they literally had to dig holes into the dirt at the starting line to put their feet into so they could set their feet right to run more efficiently at the start of the race. Now think about that image for a second. Think about a runner at the starting line of a, of a race taking a trowel and literally digging into the dirt to properly set their feet before they run the race. This is a helpful picture to keep in mind as we look at verse 13. Because here, Peter, he's writing to believers who are exiles in the world, who are running a race in the midst of hostility and persecution. And so he urges them to dig down. He urges them to set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He tells them that if you are going to run this race, this is what you need to dig your heels into. This is what you need to dig down into, this hope you have in the risen Christ. This hope that Peter has just outlined in the previous ten verses. He wants his readers to see it's not just enough to be aware of this hope. It's not enough just to, to have this hope on your mind, to intellectually understand it, or even just to give assent to it. He says we need to set ourselves upon this hope, like a runner sets their feet as they run. We need to take the trowel of faith and dig down into this hope to put our full weight upon it as we go, to stake, to stake everything on the fact that in Christ, in Christ, God's grace brings us a new life, an eternal salvation, that in the resurrection of Christ, the fact that he died and rose again, we have the promise not just of present forgiveness, but we have the promise of future glory. Because there's a future orientation to this hope here in verse 13. As AJ pointed out last week, our salvation, it does have a, a present dimension to it. When we come to faith in Christ, we are forgiven for our sins. We begin a relationship with God. We can live in communion with God right now. And this is a gift of God's grace. This is much more than we could ever deserve because of our sin. But this isn't the end of the story. Because also, since Jesus rose from the dead, since he ascended back to heaven, since he returned to his Father, that means we also have the promise that one day Christ is going to return. Christ is going to return and ju to judge and restore the world. And on that day, we will see unveiled before us the full glory, the full wonder of his grace. His grace for us, the salvation that he brings, what, what Peter refers to and what we believe in by faith, one day we will see with our own eyes. We will see the glory of his grace, the beauty of his grace, the wonder of it. It will be revealed to us 
in the future, we will see the full grace and power of Christ our King. And so in a present reality where believers are exiles in the world, where we are living in growing hostility around us, it is by setting our hope upon this future revelation of God's grace, upon this future restoration to come at Christ's return, it is by setting our hope on this in the future that we can stand fast now, even in the hardship and persecution of the present. Because as we face uh, present hostility, as we see the world changing around us, as we feel the ground moving beneath our feet, we need to remember this future hope because otherwise it's so easy to try and place our hope in so many other things, to try and grab onto something for stability and security. If you're anything like me, then it's so tempting to place your ultimate hope in things other than Christ. If you're like me, it's easy to, to place our ultimate hope in things like maybe the, the health or the security of your family or to place your hope in the success of our jobs or in our own status in the community or in the accomplishments that we have done either at work or at home in our lives. It's tempting to place our ultimate hope maybe in romantic relationships or friendships or affirmation from others either in person or online. It's tempting to place our ultimate hope in these things. And in an increasingly hostile world, where we face persecution, where we face people who disagree with what we believe, or even revile what we believe, it's, it becomes increasingly easy to place our ultimate hope in political institutions or cultural movements to bring us security. We think, hey, maybe if we can just get our culture to look a certain way, maybe if we can just get that person elected, maybe if I can just win that argument online or with my family member, then I'll be okay. Then I'll be secure. Then I'll be comfortable. And we all do this. This is a natural temptation as human beings in a fallen world. It's so easy for us in a perishing world to set our hope on perishing things, on perishable things. But instead, Peter calls us to set our hope on what is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's grace are being guarded through faith for what? For a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. This perfect fulfillment, this great restoration, this salvation is coming. It's going to be revealed. And we can set our hope in that even as we deal with the shakiness and the insecurity of our present world. Because Peter has already shown us where we find true imperishable hope even in a perishing world. We find this hope in the resurrection of Christ and the promise that one day he will return and his glory, his rule, his grace will be fully recognized and revealed. And so in the midst of a present filled with hardship and hostility. Peter calls us to set our hope on this future revelation because we know where history is going. We know the one who is overruling everything, even our suffering, even our failure. We know that the one who is overruling all of this is the same one who has acted in grace to bring us new life in Christ. And one day we will see the full glory of that grace. Do you see the privilege we have? Do you see the hope that we have? Whatever our circumstances are, 
whatever we're facing, God has already given us a hope in Christ that is only going to become more brilliant as we go, that is only going to become greater when it is fully revealed. You know, people talk a lot about we're living in a, in a post-Christian age, we're living in a post-Christian world. I heard a podcaster recently talk about how actually we're living in a pre-Christian age. We're actually living in a pre-Christian world because yes, God's present in this world, the church is present in this world, but there is a day coming when everything will be fulfilled, when everything will be restored, when everything will be perfected. And we can live out of that hope today, even in a hostile present. But Peter doesn't just call us to this, he tells us how to do this, he tells us how to set our hope on this uh, to set our hope on this grace to be revealed. And he tells us that we do so by preparing our minds for action and by being sober-minded. These two phrases here in the text, these are what we call participles. They're phrases that support the main verb in the text, which is to set your hope. That's the central command. We do that with sober and alert and active minds. Just as a, as a runner, picture that runner again, as a runner walks to the starting line, mentally preparing themselves for the race, actively setting their feet into the correct position, soberly shutting out the, the noise and the sensation of the crowd. As a runner does that, so too are believers to approach running our race in a hostile world as exiles. You see, we set our hope in exile not as people with dulled minds or distracted minds, no, but as people with active, sober minds. This is what Peter is calling us to. He's calling us to, to set our hope with minds that are ready for activity, minds that are filled with clarity, minds that are fully engaged in what we are doing in the world. You see, as Christians, we don't turn our brains off when we come to Christ. We don't blindly listen to whatever pastor or podcaster or YouTuber or cable news person is telling us. No, we come with active and sober minds. We study the scriptures. But we also study ourselves. We study our own hearts. We also study our world. We don't allow ourselves to be carried along by whoever is yelling the loudest, by the partisanship and panic that we see all around us. It's so easy to be inebriated by these things, distracted by them, compelled, carried along by them. But if we are in Christ, if we have placed our faith in the one who died for our sins and rose again, then we have a different hope. We have a hope that is greater than any human agenda or institution. A hope that is imperishable in the midst of a perishing world. A hope that allows us to live as exiles with active, sober minds. That allows us to run our race with our eyes fixed on Christ. Digging into the hope that he brings, knowing that his promise for us is a future that transforms our present. Because as we set our hope on this future grace, what happens then is we are also led into a present holiness. And we see that in the second command here in verses 14 to 16. First, set your hope. Secondly, conduct yourselves in holiness. Holiness. Now, there is a, a negative and a positive aspect to Peter's command here in verses 14 to 15. He tells us to, to turn away from something and then turn towards something else. But even as he does so right away, at the, right at the beginning in verse 14, we are reminded that this command to holiness, it flows out of our new identity, our new life in Christ. Because Peter starts this command in verse 14 with, as obedient children. 
He starts his command by reminding us. He reminds us that believers are not just people who go to church. Believers, we're not just people who read the Bible occasionally. We're not just people who try to live moral lives. No, believers are God's children. We are children of God. Why? Because we've been given a new birth in Christ. We've been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have a whole new life. We have a whole new identity as God's children. That's what it means to be a Christian, is to have this new life, this new birth. And this new birth, then, it gives us a settled hope for the future, but it also brings us a new conduct in the present. I once heard a, another Bible teacher tell a story about a child who was adopted out of abject poverty. He was adopted by a loving, wealthy family. But every morning, that child would, would go down and return to the slums where he used to live. It took him time for this child to learn that he had a new identity, that he didn't have to keep going back to his former poverty. And similarly here in verse 14, Peter reminds his readers that we are God's children, that we don't have to go back to our former poverty. We've been given a new birth, a new identity in Christ. We don't have to return to the former slums of our life before Christ. Because previously, Peter's readers who are a mix of, of Jews and, and Gentiles, they'd lived in self-centered passions and foolishness. They'd been ignorant of their true hope, of the true life that they needed. But God had changed all that because now they had been reborn in Christ through faith as children of God. And the same is true for us. Apart from Christ, if we don't know Christ or before we came to know Christ, we were living, caught up, led along by our self-centered passions and pride and foolishness. We were ignorant of our true hope, but in coming to faith in Christ and being born again to this living hope, all of that has changed. We have a whole new identity now, a whole new life now, and it doesn't mean that we're all of a sudden perfect, that we don't still have to deal with the presence of sin, but it means in this new life, we don't have to go back to those old addictions. We don't have to go back to those old passions, to that old foolishness. We have resources. We have hope. We have a life now that has liberated us from all that. And so we may still, still deal with the struggles of former temptations, former passions, former foolishness. We still may have to put that stuff to death. But we do so not in our own strength. We do so with the help of the Spirit. We do so with a whole new life and power inside of us. Because we've been reborn in Christ as children of God. And so Peter calls us, he calls believers to bear the family resemblance. He writes, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now we're talking a lot about holiness. We've already sung a lot about holiness this morning, so it's probably helpful to define that word, right? We talk about the word holy. What that word means is it just means to be set apart. When we say that God is holy, we are saying that God is utterly set apart from his creation. He is greater than his creation than anything else. He is utterly different because he is perfect and he is righteous and he is holy and he is divine. He is God and we are not. Because we are full of sin and unrighteousness, we are unholy and God is holy. He is utterly set apart, but yet when we read the pages of the Bible, we discover that this holy God, he acted in grace to call a people to himself, to call a people to himself. In the Old Testament, he called Abraham and his descendants 
to be his people, the people of Israel, to be his covenant people. And when he did so, he gave them his law. That's what we have in the first five books of the New Testament. He gave them his law, and when he he did so, he did so to instruct them for how they should live as his people in a fallen, hostile world. And one of the key commands we find in this law that God gave the Israelites, particularly in the book of Leviticus, is the command that he repeats over and over again, you shall be holy, for I am holy. At the heart of God's law here was the Lord's command for his people to grow in holiness, to grow in righteousness, to grow in Christ and God-like character because God wanted them to look more and more like him as, as the people of Israel lived their lives in the promised land surrounded by foreign nations, surrounded by people who worshipped lots of different gods and idols. And so like God, the people of Israel, they were called to be set apart. They were called to be set apart from these other nations because they were God's people. But they were called to be set apart not because they were inherently better than any of these other nations, any of these other people, but because the more that they grew in holiness, the more they were able to reflect God to these other nations. God's ultimate purpose for the people of Israel was for them to be a blessing, a kingdom of priests to the whole world. And by growing in holiness, they could reflect the character, the goodness of God to the nations. God's plan was to call a people to himself to reflect his holiness to the entire world. And this plan only continues as we get into the New Testament. Because by using these words from Leviticus here in 1 Peter 1, what Peter is doing is he is showing us how the new life we have in Christ is actually the fulfillment of God's plan. This plan to call a people to himself who will reflect his holiness. Because in Christ we are adopted as God's children if we believe in Jesus. In this new life then we're empowered to grow in holiness, to grow more and more like Christ. But the purpose of that growth is not just for ourselves, not just so that we can lord our holiness over other people, so that we can feel good and comfortable about our moral actions or our Christian duties that we fulfill. No, the purpose of growing in this holiness is to honor God by reflecting his character to other people, by reflecting his holiness to a lost and dying and perishing world. And this is a major theme we're going to see throughout the book of 1 Peter that by growing in holy conduct, we can help other people see God. That our holiness, our holy conduct has a missionary purpose. It's not just to comfort ourselves, it's to point people to the holiness, the goodness of God. Peter's going to get into this again and again, that by our conduct, we can point even those who are persecuting us, even our enemies, to God, to the gospel. We're going to see this as we go throughout this letter. But on our own, we have to remember that this kind of holiness is impossible. We can't conjure up this righteousness. We can't conjure up this holiness on our own. It is only through the new life that we are given in Christ through faith. This new life in the one who himself lived a perfect, holy, righteous life for us, who then died on the cross for all of our unholiness, and who rose again to bring us a new hope and a new restoration. It is only in him that we can be declared holy before God, but also we can start to grow in holiness in this life. We can start to live out this holiness for Christ. And so it is our living hope then in Christ that produces a growing holiness in us. But central to this growing holiness is something surprising. 
that we get to in verse 17, central to this growing holiness is also a growing fear. Because Peter tells us not just to conduct yourselves in holiness, but also to conduct yourselves in fear. In verses 17 to 21, he says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, this really struck me as I, as I read and studied that. It's kind of surprising because remember, Peter, he's writing to believers who are experiencing hardship and persecution as exiles in the world. People who are being reviled and ridiculed and, and hurt for their faith. And naturally, if any of us was in that context, it would be natural to fear. It would be natural to be afraid of your enemies, people that could hurt you, people that could harm you because of your faith, who could imprison you, who could ruin your standing in the community, who could even harm you physically. It would be natural to be afraid in that situation. And so you would think that Peter, writing this letter to these believers who are experiencing this kind of hostility, you think that he'd want to offer them some sort of encouragement not to be afraid, right? You'd think he'd want to offer them some kind of call to go and be bold and be brave and, and to not worry about your fears. Just step out and endure what you have to endure because you're stronger than them and you can beat them. You think he'd offer them some sort of encouragement not to be afraid, but what does he tell them? He says, instead, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. That's surprising. Why would Peter tell them to do this? Why would he encourage them to fear? Well, we can make sense of this when we understand that when Peter talks about fear here, he's not, he's not talking about fear in, in a human sense of, of anxiety or, or panic in response to persecution. He's not calling believers to live in fear, looking around every corner, looking under rock for an enemy. No, he's calling them uh, to a fear of God. He's not really calling them to, but he's not talking about fear of man at all here because look at what he says right before this command. He says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, then conduct yourselves in fear. Peter, he's reminding us that yes, even though we are God's children through faith in Christ, even though we may call on him as father, we still need to remember that the God we call on as father is also the judge of all. He is the Lord of all, and he is going to one day judge everyone impartially based on their deeds. You see, even as we set our hope on a future day when God's grace will be fully revealed, we don't want to forget that that future day of grace is also a future day of judgment. That the God who is the judge of all is going to look on our deeds and judge accordingly. Now, that's not to say that it is ultimately our deeds that are going to determine our works that are going to determine whether or not God will accept us or forgive us. Because as we read in the rest of the Bible, as Peter has said and will say again, our ultimate acceptance, our ultimate forgiveness is already taken care of by Christ himself. We already have this new life. We don't have to worry about hell or judgment if we are in Christ. Christ has already taken our ultimate judgment day for us on the cross. But if we have trusted in Christ, if we've truly found this new life in him, and that will be reflected in our deeds. It will be reflected in how we live. And so our deeds can help reveal whether we have this new life in Christ through faith. But then on the other side, if we've never trusted in Christ, if we've never placed our faith in him, then the reality is, according to the Bible, that judgment is coming. Either when we die or when Christ returns, apart from faith in Christ, we will face God's justice, his judgment for our rebellion, our sin, our selfishness. 
God is the judge of all. And so Peter is calling us to remember that when we approach God our Father, we should do so, yes, with joy and humility, but also with reverent fear, with awe, because we are coming to the judge of everything. We are coming before the God of the universe. See, as we live in exiles in the world, it is so tempting to fear man above all else, to fear what other people might say or what they, other, what they might do to us. And what we need in that context, when it's so easy to get caught up in fear of man, what we need is not to have our fear removed. We need to have our fear replaced. We need to replace our fear of man with a reverent fear of God, of his holiness, of his judgment, of his utter and incomprehensible righteousness. As the author Elliot Clark puts it in his book, Evangelism as Exiles, he writes that if we are going to live as exiles in a hostile world, we need to fight fear with fear. We need to fight fear of man with a fear of God. And it's by living in this holy fear of God then that we will be compelled to grow in holiness. We'll be compelled to grow in obedience to his commands. But it's also by growing in this holy fear of God, by living in this fear, this reverent awe, that we will also be compelled to tell others, to tell even our enemies about the reality of his judgment, about the deliverance that he has provided in Christ. Because if our fear in exile is what the world might if the thing we are most fearful of losing is our rights or our status or our freedoms, then we will either be led to flee the world and hide in our own little Christian bubble, or we will be led to fight the world, to try to take over the world, to try and overcome the world, to secure those rights and those freedoms and those privileges. But if we remember this eternal perspective that Peter is giving us, that there is a holy judge of all, who is ruling over everything, that there is a day of judgment coming for those who are living in rebellion against God, then we will be moved, as Clark puts it, from fear of our enemies to fear for our enemies. Do you see that? If you remember that God is judge of all, that there is judgment coming for anyone who doesn't know Christ, and that will lead us to, be, to move from being afraid of our enemies to fearing for our enemies, for their eternal state, their eternal salvation. So as we live in exiles, as we keep this eternal perspective in mind, are we more concerned with the spitballs of hostility that our enemies are flicking at us, or are we more concerned with the giant truck of judgment that is heading straight for them at full speed? What is compelling our life in the world? What is compelling how we treat those who disagree with us, who we might consider our enemies? Are we caught up in our present moments of fear of man? Or does our fear of God and his judgment, his holy righteousness, his justice, lead us to fear for even those who hate us? Because what is coming for them apart from Christ is far worse, infinitely worse, than anything they can do to us. So are we caught up in fear of our enemies or fear for our enemies? Because if we take this seriously, what the Bible says, the holiness, the glory, the judgment of God, if we truly fear him, then more than we fear man, then all of a sudden our enemies, they become not people to defeat. They become people who need to be rescued. They become people who need to know the gospel because they're still lost in their ignorance. They're still under the judgment of God. 
they have yet to experience this new birth in Christ. So do we remember that as we face persecution or hostility or disagreement from people who don't yet know Christ? Are we more caught up in fear of our enemies or fear for our enemies? Because if we remember this, if we remember this fear of God, how holy he is, we'll become willing not just to try and tell our enemies about the gospel, about Christ, about God's deliverance, not just to tell them, we'll be willing to even suffer for their sake. We'll be even willing to lay our lives down so that other people can know the truth about their sin, about the just judgment of God, about his deliverance in Christ. And so we need to conduct ourselves in reverent fear of God as we live in exile, because there is a judge of all, but also because there is a rescue available. God himself has provided a rescue from this judgment. There's a ransom, there's a deliverance that has come not through the perishable things of this world, but through the precious blood of Christ. And this is what Peter points us to here in verses 18 to 21, that in order to conduct ourselves in holiness and fear, we have to know, we have to remember that the judge of all has made a way for us to be ransomed, to be delivered from the judge we We have to see how God, our, our holy judge, our good father, he foreknew, he planned from before the foundations of the earth, he planned to send his own son as the ultimate sacrifice for our sins, to bear that judgment that we deserve. Peter here, he refers to Jesus as a lamb without blemish or without spot. And he does so using imagery from the Old Testament of a sacrificial lamb. The sacrificial lamb that was killed to deliver God's people from slavery in Egypt or killed in the temple to pay for their sins as their substitute. See, God is, or Peter is declaring that God sent Jesus to go to the cross as this ultimate sacrificial lamb. He went to the cross to purchase with his own life our deliverance from slavery to sin to free us from the judgment that we deserve, cleanse us from our guilt before God by taking that guilt upon himself. But that wasn't the end of God's plan. Because Peter tells us in verse 21 that God also raised Jesus from the dead. And he gave him glory so that our faith and hope are in God. And so it all circles back around to hope again, to what we are placing our hope in. See, because of the death and resurrection of Christ, we can be delivered from the judgment that we deserve. We can be born again into a living hope as God's children. We can have eternal security. We can have a future hope that compels us to grow in holiness in the present, that leads us into a reverent fear of God, the judge of all, who brought us this glorious salvation and compels us to share this salvation with others, even our enemies. Let me ask you this morning, friends, what are you setting your hope upon? What are you digging into as you run this race in a hostile world? Are you looking to perishable things for your hope and your identity? Or have you come to rest in the perishable hope of the risen Christ? Are you living in fear of man or fear of God? Fear of your enemies or fear for your enemies? Have you been delivered, ransomed through faith in Christ? Have you found this living hope, this new life in him? If you have, then remember this new life changes everything. Everything. It brings us a future hope that produces a present holiness.
Let's pray in response to that together. Merciful Father, we thank you that even though we were lost in former ignorance and passions and sin and idolatry and rebellion, even though we deserve your judgment, we thank you that you sent your Son to be our perfect sacrificial lamb, to take our place, to pay the price to deliver us, to bring us this new life as your children. So let this hope produce in us a holy life. Help us to grow in holiness in response to this new identity, this new life we have in Christ, but not just so we can feel good about ourselves or so that we can uh, check off boxes or, or feel like we're doing our duty. Help us to grow in holiness so that we can reflect the good news of Christ, the living hope of Christ to those who are still lost in their sins, who are still perishing in this world. Lord, help us to love even our enemies, to fear for them because of your just holy judgment, but to lovingly and joyfully tell them how you have made a way for us to be delivered. Lord, help us in our posture in the world as we figure, as we seek to live out our hope. Give us wisdom in different circumstances as we face different challenges. Help us to always have our hope set on the risen Christ. And help everything else to be clear in light of that eternal hope. Help us to live with active, sober minds to set our hope fully upon the grace that will be revealed to us in the revelation of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let's uh, stand and sing in response. So please stand and sing with us. deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory behold the man upon the cross my sin upon his shoulders Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ. 
resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Amen. Please be seated. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. One of the, the ways we have as a church family to remember, to rejoice together in this ransom that God has provided in Christ through the, the death and resurrection of his son, through the, the body of Christ being broken, the blood of Christ being shed, one of the ways we rejoice in this together, remember this together, is the ordinance of communion. This is a time where we uh, look at the symbols of the bread and the cup as ways of remembering, of preaching to ourselves, our own hearts, to one another, of the fact that Christ's body was broken, to, to pay the price for our sins, that his blood was shed to cleanse us of our guilt before God. And so we enter this time humbly, we enter it gratefully, enter it joyfully, remembering uh, who Jesus is, what he's done for us. And so we, we would say that if you're here and you're not sure that you've received this ransom, you're not sure that you have placed your faith in Christ, this perfect sacrificial lamb, then we would encourage you to take this time to consider these things, to look back over these words that we've read this morning and to look at your own heart and, and think about whether or not you uh, ha see your sin, you see the need for a Savior, you see the need for this deliverance, this ransom. And then we would invite you, instead of taking the, the elements, the bread and the cup this morning, take Christ. Take Christ. Look to him in faith. Rest in him. Set your hope on him as your Savior, not anything in this perishing world. So we encourage you, if, you, if you've made that confession, if you've placed your faith in Christ, then uh, take and receive the elements with humility and with joy. And as we do so, our pattern as a church family is that we take the bread first, and we receive it and eat it individually, and then uh, we take the cup, and we, when we receive it, we hold on to it, and then we drink it and drink it together at the same time as our symbol, as a symbol of our unity in Christ. So as we do so together, let me pray for us. And Father, we thank you now for this bread, for this symbol that reminds us of uh, Jesus, the bread of life, the Son of God who took on flesh uh, to bring us to yourself, whose flesh, whose body was broken on the cross to pay our ransom so that we can be made your children. So Lord, make this good news, make this, uh, these joyful tidings a reality to us as we spend time in reflection and prayer now, as we meditate on the good news, the, the amazing truth that the body of Christ was broken for us. 
So help us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. thank you this morning for how you have reminded us of your holiness, how you are set apart, you are, you are righteous and perfect. We confess our guilt to you that uh, we are, are full of sin and unrighteousness. We are utterly unworthy to come into your, our, your presence because of our guilt before you. But we thank you for sending your son to shed his blood on the cross to cleanse us of our guilt so that we can be declared holy in his name, in him, so that we can be accepted into your presence with boldness and, and confidence and joy. So help us to do so now as we pray in response and help us to share this good news with others. That the blood of Christ cleanses us from our sin. That in the risen Christ we truly have an imperishable hope. That we can enter into your presence now and we can look forward to the hope of one day seeing the fullness of your presence and your glory forever. Lord, so make these things clear to us and clear to others, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.
Amen. Well, let's, uh, let's drink together as a sign of our unity in Christ. <clears throat> All right, well, thanks again for being here. Uh, let me just remind you, if any questions about anything that's been said, in the announcements, and the prayers, in the songs, in the sermon, I'd love to discuss all this with you. Uh, but let's go from here with a word of benediction. So please stand and hear this word. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Amen. Go in peace.